Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Naturopathic Times podcast. If you are new to our show, this is an interview podcast that bridges the gap between naturopathic philosophy and common day practice. I am your host, Katerina Meister. And I'm your co-host, Stephanie Yacopedia. And as a final reminder, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share with someone you know. On to the show. Today's licensed naturopathic doctor is a type 1 diabetic doctor and hormone expert. Additionally, she is the creator of Energy Explosion, speaker and writer. She sees patients locally in Portland and worldwide virtually. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Laura Neville. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for joining and coming. Um, Virtually is always the best way right now and everything's been working out perfectly. we're curious for our listeners like to hear a little bit about your story. Um, that's always something we're interested in, just seeing you know, what really made you choose such an unconventional route in medicine. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, probably like so many naturopathic doctors, we usually get into this field because we had some personal experience, either ourselves or family members or friends. Um, mine happened to be when I was seven, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, so I didn't, I didn't probably know how to explain it at that time, but I did right away see kind of some gaps in the conventional system. Um, a lot of type ones are very sensitive people. And so I felt like this constant, you know, I was just immersed in the conventional world with endocrinologist and primary care visits and, uh, eye screenings and, you know, looking at your kidneys and, and there's so many things involved with that type of care. Um, but I just felt like I was kind of in this revolving door of, you know, whitewashed walls and very, um, non, it was just cold. It was cold and it was sterile medicine. And so probably from that moment on, I just really felt like, you know, I, if, if I was doing this, I would do it differently, right? I always had that in the back of my mind. And so when I was actually in my early 20s, I saw a naturopathic doctor for the first time ever. I had no clue what that, you know, even meant or was. And, you know, I would honestly say within a couple of visits, she absolutely changed my life trajectory. And I remember just feeling so heard and understood and and listen to beyond a diagnosis, right? Like so many, I think, meet type ones and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know what to do with them. And, and we have to just watch the A1C and we've got to do all these screening exams and like, oh my gosh, you know, and, and there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear with that kind of management. But this naturopathic doctor was amazing. And so she just really inspired me. I mean, like within two visits, I was like, I, I need to do what she's doing. Um, I want to yeah. a wholehearted approach to medicine and, and the non-fear-based approach and look deeper than just the diagnosis. And I want people to feel heard and, and like they're a whole being, mind, body, and soul, not just, hey, what's, you know, what's your people go with A1C? What's your, what's your blood sugar? Type ones are so sick of that question. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's over like 34 million Americans right now who have diabetes. Yeah, absolutely. And on the way to diabetes with 88 million on pre-diabetes. So that's pretty prevalent yeah. in America. Yeah. Right now. And, and type two, absolutely. Type one is even rising exponentially as well. Back, you know, in 89, 1989 was when I was diagnosed 
there were very few type one diabetics that I knew of. Um, it was a much less common illness. And so that just kind of speaks to what's going on in our environment likely and, uh, you know, mental health as well. Um, to be creating such autoimmunity, um, especially, you know, with virus cross-reactivity, obviously that's happening right now. And there's just a lot more ones. So, wow. I was doing a bit more research into all of this stuff and the rising numbers, but I was looking into the function of your beta cells, um, when you're pre-diabetic have type one or type two. And so with the function of your beta cells at, when you're pre-diabetic, it's about 30% loss of function. So these cells, 30% are not making the insulin to put the sugar back into your cells to generate energy. And then um, I think it's by the time at type two, you've lost 50%. So it's like half, you're already half of a type one diabetic at that point, which is pretty, those numbers were kind of mind blowing to me. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's type ones that aren't taught to eat properly and they're eating very high carb, low fat diets. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they actually have like mild insulin resistance, like early, you know, maybe not pre-diabetes type two, but they're in a super pickle because they've got type one diabetes and they're insulin resistant and could potentially move towards pre-diabetes in the type two realm, you know? Mm. So there's some, there's some real complexity there and they can often overlap. So, yeah. Before we get into that, um, what could you tell us a little bit like type one versus type two and you know, what does this even mean for people who are diagnosed with these two? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, they're both called, I wish they had a different name for, <laughs> for um, either one. So they weren't lumped together because mm-hmm. it does create a lot of confusion. Normally when we hear the word diabetes, we're talking about type two, you know, nine times out of 10, a much smaller percentage is actually type one where that's, that's actually an autoimmune condition um, where the immune system has kind of latched on a attacked, if you will, although I don't love that word, um, destroyed the beta cells. And so very little, uh, zero insulin at, at an eventual point will be made. So those uh, type ones have to use insulin um, in an exogenous or like an outside form. So they've got to inject it in order to stay alive. Um, and type two is, is a bit of a different situation. That's typically, if you want to you know, compare them side by side, you're talking about there is insulin present. Um, it may not be at a hundred percent, but that insulin, uh, the body is resistant to allowing that insulin to go into the cells to be able to work. So it's, you know, you start to see insulin levels rise. Actually, if you look in the bloodstream, because it's not getting into the cell, there's, um, you know, bodily resistance to that. So, um, you do end up in both cases with elevated blood sugar levels, which is what diabetes is, but they, uh, come about for very different reasons. Um, comparing type one and type two. Mm -hmm. And insulin helps to the glucose from leaving the blood sugar to go into the cells. So that's why they have the longstanding, uh, high blood, high blood sugar. Um, what does that do the high blood sugar? Like, why is that so bad for us? 
Yeah, it kind of um, eats away and and um, is destructive to the tissues in the body. So you're talking about, I mean, head to toe, the brain, the nervous system, the um, teeth. <laughs> you're talking about the little nerves, especially uh, the really tiny ones in the end of the fingers and the toes, uh, the eyes. Those are usually the first place where little blood vessels and nerves get damaged first. It's basically like kind of like rotting away those tissues. Um, I hate to use that yeah. word, also, but that's what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, so that's what happens. Yeah. Yikes. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is why everyone should care about their blood sugar, not just people that are pre-diabetic or diagnosed with type one or type two. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Everyone should care. And, and I think, you know, unfortunately in the conventional system, the way that it works is it, that we have a drug or a surgery to help once, a, once a disease is established. Right. But until someone's labeled pre-diabetic or even diabetic, there's not a lot that's usually done to kind of reverse that, which is why I love our medicine so much is that we're, we care when it's pre, 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 pre-diabetic in, and we can start to um, implement changes that is so much easier to reverse and have the body heal and have the body step in and, and become its own best healer you know, prior to that outright diagnosis, once you wait to that point, like you said, 50% of the beta cells may be gone at that point. We've waited far too long to make changes. Um, and so getting in early is really important and everyone absolutely should, should care about their blood sugar. Mm -hmm. How should people go about balancing their blood sugar or monitoring their blood sugar? If they don't get these, um, if they don't get their blood glucose checked often? Yeah, so, you know, probably, let's see, I'm kind of in my head almost splitting the type ones and the, and the non-type ones in my mind because that's the, the group that I work so much with, but type ones are already gonna be kind of in that system, right? They're checking their blood glucose, they're getting hemoglobin A1C measurements often, which is kind of the average blood glucose over the past two or three months. Um, People can get a like a glucometer. They're super inexpensive at this point. You can just pick that up from Walgreens or CVS or Amazon. Um, any of the glucometers will give you a decent idea. Um, and so I think you know it, that's becoming more mainstream for people. It's not so much those are only given to diabetics. I think it's per perfectly fine to do that yourself and just you know, pick that up at home. Um, there are also even uh, continuous glucose monitors that were once only used for diabetics. Um, I know a lot of people in the health world, uh, you can you can get your hands on this and actually read your subcutaneous level and kind of see how the diet of what you're eating is, you know, how that's showing up in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. But say you didn't have any test you didn't want to get a glucometer, you didn't know anything like that. Um, there are other ways to understand blood glucose, I would say. Um, 
you know, in, in younger women, things like acne are, can be a sign that there's some blood sugar dysregulation or insulin resistance at play. Uh, weight gain can definitely be a sign of that. Anything uh, yeast, like skin rashes or yeast infections, vaginal yeast infections, those are signs of blood sugar imbalance. Right. So sometimes you'll have, you know, uh, signs or symptoms in your body um, that you can, you know, kind of understand even without testing. But I think the glucometer is probably the easiest way to go. Um, if you don't like feeling like being your own doctor, you know, you can right. just, <laughs> it's hard to keep track of all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. yeast, it's because they're feeding off of that sugar, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeast tends to grow. I mean, yeast is common in the body just as a normal state, but it tends to grow too much when there's too much sugar. So what if it's too low? If your blood sugar is too low, what then? Yeah. So we call that hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. Oftentimes, um, the remedy for that is, is to increase protein and fat in the diet. Um, sometimes people have a tendency to, yeah, be on the other side of that where they're dipping low. However, we have seen that people who tend towards that low blood sugar, uh, if that goes on for years and years, they have a much a uh, higher likelihood of going into prediabetes or even diabetes with elevated blood sugar. So it's kind of a very early sign that the liver and the body is having a hard time <clears throat> balancing everything. And a lot of times that can be addressed with diet, increasing fiber, fruits and vegetables, whole foods, increasing protein and fat. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they don't know like why the body is, or is it, do you think it's primarily like the diet? <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, you know, like with everything, there's probably genetic predisposition. Sometimes people will say, I get, you know, low blood sugar, my father had this, you know, it, it kind of runs in our family. But I do think the majority of that is is dietarily um, kind of pushed, you know, to develop. Do you see both pretty often in your practice, like a good even split of high blood sugar and low? Well, so most of my practice is uh, revolving around uh, like women 45 and up. They're usually dealing with more uh, elevations in blood glucose. And then type ones, of course, it's, it's elevated blood glucose. I mean, they'll suffer with low blood sugar for sure, but that's a little bit different of a situation that has to do with insulin dosing, which is actually very, very difficult to do perfectly. So they'll, you know, that population obviously has a ton of low blood sugar, but not for the same reason as um, I think what you guys are talking about where, um, you know, people just have that tendency to, to drop a little bit too low, they get shaky and dizzy and they have to they have to eat, you know, now, um, I don't see that nearly as much in the patients that I work with. Okay. So in the type one patients that you do see, um, what is their, cause now they're already in like their forties and fifties, they've been living with this condition for a while. Like what is their chief complaint when they come and see you? Yeah. So, you know, at type ones, I think we're, we're kind of, um, instant family when we meet and there's there's an understanding that they are used to dealing with a lot right they they've been at this they're not usually interested in me trying to perfect their blood sugars they're not saying hey my hemoglobin a1c is too high you know like tired of that they're ready they are so ready to look deeper you know to understand 
um, their hormone levels, maybe they're, ner- I like doing neurotransmitter work with them. I like talking about the mind body. I like talking about um, Ayurvedic doshas with them, which I find is actually a fascinating kind of uh, addition to um, type one diabetes. There's um, for those that haven't kind of heard of that, the doshas are um, kind of the, the constitution, like how you show up as a person energetically and physically in the world. And when you're imbalanced, a lot of type ones are a vata dosha, what they call a vata dosha, which is very, um, it's the classically depleted state, burned out, dry, thin, depleted, right? Like you imagine a type one right. that wasn't given insulin would, you know, mm-hmm. most of everyone died before insulin came, exogenous insulin came on uh, the, the scene. So that's like the epitome of an imbalanced vata dosha. And so, you know, talking to them about this, it's sometimes like, just like lights come on for them because they've never, no one's ever, you know, kind of talked to them about that type of thing. I think there's a lot of, um, oh, you were just a sitting duck and this just happened to you and you are a victim of this. Mm. And I, you know, I like to change that narrative, you know, and have these deeper mm. conversations and, and not just harp on the blood sugar <laughs> because, you yeah. know, none of them are coming to get, you know, um, shamed and feel guilty about, you know, how well or how well or not well that they manage their diabetes, you know? So. Yeah. And even that, just you describing the that dosha and how they are thin and depleted normally people when they think of diabetes they don't think of that necessarily per se yeah yeah very different state this is why yeah i I wish the two weren't called the same thing but with type two that tends to be more of a we call it a kapha dosha that that type of person tends to be a little heavier set under stress or imbalance they tend to overeat um, and there's more of a congestion, uh, very easy in that type of constitution when it's so imbalanced to move towards type two diabetes. You know, that, that's also uh, kind of the energetic showing of that imbalance. Mm-hmm. So I love that you use Ayurveda. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like it so much because it just, it's like, we have so many tools, obviously, but that I think that deeper energetic mm-hmm. part, sometimes we still don't quite get there um, in, in some of our medicine. And so just like taking it down to that, that deeper level. Yeah. And I love teaching people that because it becomes so empowering for them. They understand it's very, it's kind of like common sense, right? If they know they're imbalanced and they're moving towards a certain direction, they can do the things that are the opposite of that to help balance mm-hmm. them. It becomes intuitive. And so they can kind of be their own mini doctor, you know, and, and once they start to understand and recognize those patterns for themselves. Um, so I, I love it for that reason. They can, they can, you know, use skills and sensory input and smells and uh, tastes and um, sounds to balance when they're, when they're out of balance. All oh, wow. Own. That's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So do you see the levels change um, after, do they like take their own um, blood sugar and they see the change after doing something like that? Absolutely. They can. I mean, if you're talking about blood sugar, especially in a type one, those sugars will swing for every reason in the whole world. Stress is a huge reason for that. So if we can calm the nervous system and feel and, and fill it to feel more nourished and 
you know, whole and less depleted, you're absolutely going to see that in the blood sugar levels. And I think when you're not, um, when you're not out of balance, it's so much easier to choose the foods that are going to work well for you, you know, rather than kind of uh, sometimes in type one, there's kind of a rebellion against like, they've been told, Hey, you can't eat that. Don't eat this. Don't eat this. Coffee increases your blood glucose, uh, you know, stress does some type ones are afraid to exercise because their blood glucose will drop too low. So there's, there's just like a million things that they're trying to make decisions about on a Mm -hmm. daily basis. And so if we can ease some of that burden and and get their body in a more relaxed state, um, they can move kind of towards the things that are going to automatically help their blood sugars rather than running away from the things that they've been told they can't have. Cause that creates a rebellion, right? Like, Oh, I I can't have chocolate. I can't have bread. I can't have cereal. I can't have any carbs. I shouldn't eat too much fruit. You know, there's so many things. So, um, so in that way, it's kind of a indirect mm-hmm. way, I guess, that the blood sugar absolutely does get better. Um, but I think it's not because of more control. It's because actually of less control and more of a whole body kind of yeah. nourishment. I can imagine because you know? they're also under some amount of fear too with that because they're afraid that if they do those things, that something bad will happen or like some medical emergency could happen potentially or yeah I couldn't imagine yeah yeah it's a full-time job and and I again I think so much of where I come from and and my passion is to try to create a non-fear-based approach we all are entrenched in a fear-based society fear-based medical system that goes for type 1 diabetes but you name it, right? It's, it's that you teach people to be fearful to motivate them, but that actually doesn't really work in the end. So, you know, having, having a type one feeling like they're moving towards health and they're choosing this for a very different reason than mm-hmm. fear that, you know, they're trying to yes. avoid, um, yeah. you know, they're, they're kind of walking, I would say type ones walk the, the edge of life and death you know, like on a daily basis. Right. So how does this exactly affect the blood sugar, the stress? Is it the cortisol or what is actually happening? Yeah. Cortisol and epinephrine, big ones. They're going to, you know, that that's a natural response. That's that, you know, sympathetic nervous system kicking into gear, doing what what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to put out glucose so that you can run away from that, that tiger. Um, That happens in everyone. I think uh, type ones are just kind of that that's under a magnifying glass so they can see that a little easier, you know, all those ups and downs, but yeah, absolutely. Chronic stress is going to be um, pumping out cortisol and epinephrine and, mm-hmm. and jacking up those blood glucose levels. I love that though, changing the fear-based response into something where they're actually making choices instead of someone else telling them, oh, you can't do this or can't do that because something's going to happen to your blood sugar. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think especially in that group, you know, they've, they've been, yeah, there's the, this, you can do this and you can't do that. And that list goes on and on forever. And it's just, it's exhausting, you know? Yeah, totally. Just going off of this a little bit more, you kind of were mentioning the different complexities of different female hormones and how that kind of affects um, the later stages in life, like 40s, 50s. How does that affect 
the blood sugar? Yeah, it's a great question. There's, it's super complex. Um, estrogen tends to be insulin sensitizing. So when you have decent estrogen levels, your blood sugar um, tends to be a little bit better. If you notice, if you're a younger woman, the second half of your cycle, if you're type one, especially you'll notice blood sugar levels rise. That's usually because you get this big progesterone spike in the second half of the cycle. Um, estrogen tends to be a little bit more, um, it, it will kind of increase around ovulation a little bit in the second half of the cycle. Um, and so we see this in younger women that kind of, uh, bouncing around during during the month and then as women get into perimenopause or menopause uh, progesterone and estrogen levels start to drop um, we tend to see more insulin resistance at that time that tends to creep up especially if the diet isn't you know really solid um, and so you'll see this um, in blood sugar levels sometimes it you know like oh why now do I have insulin resistance well it's in part because those hormone levels are, are dropping off estrogen is dropping off so not enough estrogen is going to make you a little bit more insulin resistant it's a complex topic yeah and, it, and you know I think in medicine we tend to think very linearly we're like okay this does this and this has this action um, but I would say you know too much of anything and too little of anything is always going to have, you know, an impact on the system. But just to kind of like put it um, broadly, that's why I mentioned insulin or estrogen tends to be insulin sensitizing. Progesterone is a little bit more insulin resistant. And then too little estrogen, though, is also causes insulin resistance. So. In uh, menopause, there's a slew of different um, risk factors after you go through that, like osteoporosis yep. um, and, and uh, heart disease and all these other things. Um, I've never heard of blood sugar, though, Yeah, actually. So this is actually yeah. new to yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. Blood sugar, um, blood sugar, insulin resistance, for sure. Even if there aren't drastic blood sugar changes, there can be insulin resistance. That's usually the starting point to, you know, develop blood sugar into issues eventually. Um, but yeah, there's, a, there's quite a few factors and risk factors that rise once the hormone levels start dropping. This is kind of a, a big passion of mine as well. I think, you know, we've all been so, um, entrenched again in this world where hormone replacement is really like this kind of most women feel afraid of it. They think, oh, I know it could help my symptoms, yeah. but I think it's going to cause breast cancer. I'm worried, you know, about all these other things. Um, and so again, it's that, that fear-based approach. We know that women who use things like bioidentical mm -hmm. hormone replacement tend to live longer and with less mm -hmm. chronic illnesses mm -hmm. than women who don't use it. Um, There's so many studies backing this up now. Um, I just did a really deep dive into Alzheimer's and dementia research um, and definitely hormones, estrogen and progesterone and things like vitamin D. These are all neurotrophic factors, meaning trophic, meaning nourish. They nourish the brain. They decrease the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. Hmm. Um, so once those levels start dropping off, you have a greater risk of, of memory loss and Alzheimer's. Yeah, I've heard a lot on um, bioidentical hormone replacement as well being like actually good for you. And as long as you don't have like the risk factors for cancer, you don't have a family history. 
Yeah, I personally think that there is a very rare case that somebody wouldn't be a great candidate for bioidentical hormone replacement, um, mm -hmm. especially in females as they age. Um, most of that fear-based uh, view comes from the Women's Health Initiative study. They were using Premarin, and, uh, which is a conjugated equine estrogen. It was an estrogen developed um, to mimic horse urine. It's very, very potent estrogen. It has about 30 or more, I think, I think it's actually way more than that types of estrogen in it wow. uh, is delivered by mouth. The body does not like estrogen swallowed uh, with that topical delivery. So we're talking about a massive amount of estrogen, a progestin, which is not progesterone, although the two terms are often lumped in the research. There's a lot of confusion about this. Progestins will drop progesterone level. So you've got a ton of, um, in, in some of the research in Alzheimer's showing, um, Premarin actually made the brain basically dry up more. Memo memory loss was a big deal with wow. Premarin. When they added a progestin wow. to the Premarin, it actually massively increased the risk of brain dysfunction and memory loss. Wow. So those two combine super not a great thing. And that was, that is the majority of the research out there is on these two types of molecules. Topicals are bioidentical. Um, say like the estrogen patch, that's, that is bioidentical estrogen. Um, they do have, a, you know, more of a tendency to, to be using the bioidenticals at this point. That's just because the research is just overwhelmingly uh, in favor of bioidenticals, that same that same Alzheimer's research and memory loss research, when they used a bioidentical estrogen, the brain stayed intact, didn't lose um, neurons. So, so they look exactly the same as our hormones that yeah. we have in our body. So they are technically synthetic, but they're bioidentical, meaning it is the same exact molecule that what our body makes, you know, normally as. Being so, there's also that talk of, or an argument, I would say that some people have. Well, we're supposed to be aging. We're, we're supposed to be losing these hormones. Why do we want to reintroduce them? I think it's a really great question. Um, they have researched this kind of all over the world. Like, what what other what symptoms are they experiencing? I think there was an anthropologist that looked at this in like the 1970s. She went around the world and she asked other. Um, other villages and other towns and other countries. Hey, what do you, what do you guys, um, call hot flashes, <laughs> you know, and these cultures didn't have a name for it. They were like, what are you talking about? We don't, we don't experience that women will stop menstruating around 50, 55, and they, they don't have any other symptoms, a little bit of mm -hmm. joint pain that was more commonly reported. Um, but other than that, they weren't experiencing any health changes. So I think it does bring up our stress level, the way we're living, yeah. our food sources, our community, you know, and do we have that social network? Yeah. I think there's so much more involved. So ideally, I would have someone, you know, go live, uh, I don't know, as a yeah. in a blue zone, yeah. a lifestyle. However, unless you can do that, and you live and you've got a nine to five and you've got stressors on, mm -hmm. I do think that 
This is similar to thyroid replacement if you need it. If your thyroid levels are low, why would you hold that back from someone? If you need insulin and you mm-hmm. don't have enough insulin, why would you hold that back from someone? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I think it's a, a theoretical like push against the kind of anti-aging industry. However, I do think it's it's a nourishing yeah. factor for the body and the brain. Um, so yeah, well, I, I, I think people deserve to feel good in the world that we're living in. So, mm-hmm. oh yeah, <laughs> but you know, women are, are living longer too. So that's, that's yeah. also something that we have to take in, into fact too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we talked about like the mental health and the stress factor, and it's so funny that you bring that up because. I feel like me and Stephanie have seen that in almost every interview and it's not even that we're trying to attract like that kind of conversation. It just naturally comes into every single interview. And I'm kind of curious what your perspective is after practicing for so many years. And is that something you see a lot too? I mean, I remember in school they would tell us, and I feel like this was always like an afterthought, like, okay, we have all these amazing botanicals and we study diet and like you know, the research on the Mediterranean diet. It was like, when I first went into school, I thought, okay, you know, like a good diet should be able to fix, you know, 99% of things. I, that's all yeah. I need to do. Right. Um, but, you know, they would say kind of as an afterthought, like, well, do all these things, but really what you're going to find out when you get into clinical practice is that it's all about mindset and about, uh, thought patterns and, and mental health. That's the very foundation. And I was like, wait, what? You know, like, <laughs> tell me, tell me more about that because, okay, if that's the most important thing, like, how do we address that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would absolutely say hands down that that is probably the thing that allows someone to get better or doesn't, um, especially when we're talking about mm-hmm. autoimmunity. A lot of times this is a Again, it's like you were yeah. a victim. You you got this just came and swept you off your feet, right? And it's not they don't feel empowered. They feel like a victim. Um, and and having a conversation around that is sometimes a little uncomfortable, you know, for them to say like, oh, I did have a role to play in the development of my autoimmune disease. But I think those conversations mm-hmm. have to be talked about because that is the crux. You can do the dietary changes. You can, you know, I see people like, Oh, all all I eat is an apple and, you know, green tea. And like, that's all I can handle. That's all my digestive system can handle. I've totally cleaned up my diet. I'm taking 50 supplements every day and I'm exercising and I'm doing all the things and they're still not getting better. Right. And so Mm -hmm. unless we address that mental health piece and the kind of uh, thought patterns that are oftentimes totally, they don't know that they're having these negative thought patterns. They think that's just, you know, how they are and how everyone else thinks. So why question it? Um, and, and really, I think that's, that's the absolute crux of chronic health issues is, is mindset, you know, chronic, chronic stress that's unaddressed. Um, and those, those deeper patterns about what are their thoughts, what are, you know, what do those thoughts look like in the back of their mind that nobody else can hear? And sometimes they can't even hear them yet. Mm -hmm. So, 
I saw mm. a patient. This just reminds me of um, this patient that I saw while I was shadowing another doctor and his diet was perfect. I mean, perfect exercise, perfect. Everything was great. He was so stressed out with work. And that was yeah. why he was coming in pretty much. He's like, I don't get it. I'm doing everything perfectly. And she's like, well, you're stressed out. You're so stressed out. And yeah. yeah. Well, and it's just like such a normal thing to be stressed out mm-hmm. nowadays. It's like, yeah, I know. But like, what am I going to do about it? Right? Everyone else is stressed yeah. out too. And it's, I think yeah. we both have to, um, we have to question that. And we have to totally change that all up. And you'll see, I mean, autoimmune, um, there's a tendency to be a little OCD, especially type ones, because they have to live this very controlled life, you know, and that shows up in a lot of other mm-hmm. things. Uh, it's a, seems like it's a stress management tool that's actually a sign of, you know, some of those deeper mental um, mental health things that we that we have to talk about. We have to get uncomfortable and talk about people's stress and you know, how, how do you respond to stress? Everyone responds very differently. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, that's, that, I think that's the crux of it. That's actually the juiciest part. Mm-hmm. Does the awareness really help them? Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it does because I think, um, you know, you say, Oh, okay. I'm stressed at work. Okay. Why? Let, let's ask, let's like go deeper. Why are you stressed at work? well because I've always done a really good job and I'm an overachiever and I always get the top sales and you know I just feel like um like I want to be the best okay so why why do you think it say you didn't get that would do you think your team members would think badly of you you know yeah it's the high standards yes and we just had this, me and Stephanie yeah. just had this conversation, yeah. the perfectionism piece of wanting oh. to be perfect and these high standards. Yeah. And perfectionism is just a fancy word for fear. The yeah. You're failing and fear, you know, once you start to just like acknowledge and ask yourself, oh, what would happen if I failed? You know, mm-hmm. I would think less of myself. Oh, interesting. Like, you know, and you ask those deeper questions. I think sometimes just even the awareness of it, maybe you don't quite know how to totally change that in your mind, but just giving yourself some space and looking at it and kind of laughing at it, like, oh, that's not, you know, that's like a silly thought pattern that I have. Where the heck did that come yeah. from? You know, and and there's somewhat of an automatic shift there that already happens even if you don't know the next step of what to do just know and just being aware of it like you said I think is is very powerful because you're automatic you're going to be like no that's not true you know and you already started to unwind it I don't know how we got here from blood sugar <laughs> I know <laughs> how we're here. it's all interrelated so maybe that's why yeah um I would really love if you talked a little bit about treatments for, I guess, for both uh, this stress response that you're seeing in your patients and the um, blood sugar piece. What what are your go-tos? Oh, gosh, yeah. So meditation is my absolute, like, if I could get everyone to do a little bit of meditation, I feel like I would be winning at life. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's funny that I feel like most of 
most of my patients are just like, you know, all of us, it's easy to do all the things. It's easy to take 20 supplements. It's cool to be excited about that and botanicals and nutraceuticals and like take all this thing and change your diet and get it all cleaned up and do the exercise program and do all the things. Right. But the second we talk about slowing down or taking five deep breaths before every single meal that they eat or taking 10 minutes to do meditation right in the middle of the day. That is the part that's the hardest for everyone. And that's really where um, I'm headed in a lot of my work is, is, you know, studying that and studying how, how people respond. Um, You know, I think so many people are, they're working their, their butts off during the day and they pound their coffee and they do all the things and they take all the supplements and, you know, it's like, why am I not getting better? It's like really, really uncomfortable. It's oftentimes if I give them the treatment plan, you know, as great as it is, they're going to do all the things on that, except the meditation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the one thing. And that's what I think is a super big clue for me where I need to focus more, you know, of my treatment plans on and, and, and focus more of the work on that, because that's a really big clue to me. The thing that somebody doesn't want to do or what they resist the most Mm. is the absolute key to. I like that. That is so true though, because they are resisting that for a reason. And it's because they don't want to slow down. They don't want to, they don't, want to relax because they have those other stressors that are stressing them out so much that they don't feel like they can even take five seconds to take five breaths or whatever, how long yeah. that would take. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a big one. I, I often say that, or some people, for some people it's like, Oh, it's my coffee. That's you can change anything about my whole life, but don't take my coffee away. Right. You know, so that's also another yeah. for me. I'm like, what is that about? That's about, you know, go, 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 push, push, push. And yeah, that is also the flip side of the, I don't want to do the meditation. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. This is such a fresh perspective on things. I really, yeah. I love hearing about this or talking about this. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad. Yeah. I, um, a lot of self-reflection I think helps you know, you to create the best treatment plans and to know the best direction to go for your patients. Since you, um, we tend to pull in the people, you know, that somehow are, are on that same vibration as we are. So the stuff that we need to do as humans is the same thing that, that our patients need to do. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just like thinking about my own, my own things (laughs) and that is seriously like a main component. Yeah. I mean, we're in school, so it's a little yeah, different, it's, um, but it's still very similar. You have to yeah. make time for yourself. Yeah. 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 I remember somebody telling me when I first started school, just hang on. It's going to be okay. Just don't drink too much coffee. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I feel that resistance. Like I'm going to do right. it anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yes. Definitely. You tell me not to. (laughs) Yeah, I know it gets emotional with the coffee. (laughs) It really does. Yeah. (laughs) Um, on your Instagram, you talk a little bit about, or you mentioned we're more than our hemoglobin A1C. So I'm I'm imagining everything we're talking about here sort of goes into that one quote, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and the A1C is like, I don't want people to think that I it's not important. It absolutely is important. However, you know, I'm talking there a lot to my type ones. It's like there, there's so much more to them than those numbers. And when you look and you you get the opportunity to go there with them and to look deeper at their doshas, their neurotransmitters, their hormones, their inflammatory um, markers, their uh, response to stress, how they how they respond to stress, how they think about their diagnosis, all of those things. That's really what I mean, and and I want them to know that they they are so much more than than a label and a diagnosis and a hemoglobin A one C. No one no one cares. <laughs> I care about so much more than that. So I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Neville, for joining us today and sharing your story. You can find her online at www.drneville.com, and that is D-O-C-T-O-R-N-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. On her website, she has a woman's hormone discovery cheat sheet available to download, and it's great for women of all ages and type 1 diabetes who struggle with blood sugar swings around menses. You can also find her on Instagram at Dr. Laura Neville, and that is D-R-L-A-U-R-A-N-E-V-I-L-E. And check out her Facebook group for type 1 diabetics called Holistic T1D, and that is H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C-T-1-D. And don't stress, all of this information will be posted down below in the show notes and on our episode highlight pages at naturopathictimespod.com. And before we close the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get podcasts to stay updated on our newest episodes. Comment, rate, review, and most of all, share with someone you know. Thank you so much, Dr. Neville. Bye. Thank you guys so much.